you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. How's it going? Good, how are you? Doing okay. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Tiffany. Jacob. Nice to meet you. Nice to officially meet you. Nice to meet you too. (laughs) So where are we right now? We are at Los Leones Trail in Santa Monica Mountains. Yeah. (laughs) Palisades. It's a gorgeous summer day in the mountains above Los Angeles, the ancestral lands of the Chumash and Tongva people, when I meet up with Tiffany Tharp and Michelle Race. They've got their hiking gear on, plus, of course, water, sunscreen, and sun chips. They're prepared. We trudge up a steep and dusty trail in the sun, brushing past prickly shrubs and occasionally finding shady spots beneath oak trees. We're headed out this afternoon. So how would you rate this day for a hiking day? terms of weather. Oh, I would probably give it like a three. <laughs> a three? Yeah. Why? Um, because I don't do well hiking in the heat. Mm. I mean, typically when I go hiking, I start at like six, seven o'clock. Oh my gosh. I didn't know I was <laughs> making you guys wait for like... <laughs> oh, no, no it feels nice to do something really casual, but yeah, that's why I was like, we can do eight. And you're like, no, no, it's like casual. Nice. I like <laughs> Michelle and Tiffany have done the Los Leones trail a lot. They go hiking most weekends, sometimes leading large groups of people. They're the founders of the group Black Girls Trekking, which is all about creating a community for women of color on trails, outdoors. Oh, yeah. No, take one second. Just, no, yeah. Oh, thank you, guys. The path they're taking me up is kind of narrow, and we got to keep squeezing past a zillion other hikers, trying to get to the view overlooking the ocean and the city. Good morning. 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 Thank you. What kind of snake is it? Is it a rattlesnake? It looks like a rattle. Oh, wow. Look at this. We're getting drama for the the (laughs) video already. (laughs) This area we're in is so much different than the forests we visited in earlier episodes. Before, we were up in the northern part of the state, where we hiked among giant conifers, big flowing rivers. There was even snow on the ground. But here in Southern California, about 650 miles to the south, it's really dry. And the plants here are completely different. The hills look more olive brown than forest green. What is this? Sticky leaf monkey flower. And when you're walking on trails, instead of that lush, damp forest smell, you smell the pungent white sage and chia. Is that where we get chia seeds from? It is. You kick up dust as your feet drag along the ground, which coats the inside of your nose and mouth. And you've probably seen exactly what all this looks like, even if you've never been here. Because these mountains have served as the background in all sorts of Hollywood stuff, going back almost 100 years. Think old episodes of Star Trek, or if you've seen Westworld on HBO, those saloons were all built in a place called Paramount Ranch, which is right nearby. And as we're walking along the trail, Tiffany and Michelle are pointing out familiar plants. And this is Toyon. 
Look at you showing up today. <laughs> what does it look like? It looks, well, the story behind it is that what the Europeans that came um, thought it was holly. So that's why Hollywood is Hollywood because this is all over Griffith Park. But it's actually Toyon, which is the native version. Or I don't even think they're in the same family, but yeah. it's got red berries all over it. Yes, it does. Just like all those old Star Trek episodes, when you leave the city and walk up here, you almost feel like you're on another planet, that you're totally remote. But much like Hollywood, turn 180 degrees, and you'll see that there's a lot more going on behind the camera. A thick brown layer of smog settling on a city of close to 4 million people. In those moments of escape, where your head's down, you're sweating, trudging up a hill, separated from the city, it holds a lot of significance to a lot of us here including for Michelle and Tiffany. I feel like my problem is I have so many thoughts in my head and worries and like, I need to plan this, I need to do this, you know. Um, so hiking allows my mind to kind of like take a step back and just like relax, you know. You're out in nature right now, you don't have to think about all those things that you've been worrying about. Both Tiffany and Michelle grew up here, but it took them each a long time to find this refuge outdoors. Tiffany was in her early 20s when she finally got to escape onto some trails. And when she did, she couldn't get enough, driving all over the place, hiking trails every week for a year, largely on her own. And the more she got out there, the more often she noticed something. I just didn't see a lot of like black women and like people of color where I was going when I was hiking. Turns out Michelle was going through the same thing as Tiffany. A longtime lover of the outdoors, she'd gotten her degree in marine biology and found herself the only black woman in mostly white, sciencey, and outdoor spaces. I like had internalized this idea that like, why is it that you know black women aren't interested in this, right? Which I think is kind of the narrative that a lot of people think, and it isn't because there isn't an interest, obviously, but really like you know, obviously all this other systematic stuff that a lot of outdoor spaces not only feel unsafe, but were very much unsafe in the past. A lot of horrible things happened in outdoor spaces. Um, I think that, like, just, you know, a traumatic history of slavery also separates Black people from the land because of the trauma that we endured on the land. So they wanted to build a safe and inclusive community outdoors, which is why they founded Black Girls Trekking. It's like the one time that you get to be outdoors and not have to go through those mental gymnastics because you're not trying to, like, please somebody else, you have a group of people that understand what you're about, you know. We take a breather under the shade of a eucalyptus tree. To our left are the hills we've escaped to. Wilderness, with toyon and rattlesnakes. To our right is the endless Pacific Ocean. And sprawled out beneath us is Los Angeles. All the densely packed neighborhoods, the best restaurants in the world, tons of things to do, in my opinion, a great place to raise a family. No, I promise, I, I don't work for the tourism board. If you ask me what I love about LA, that's the top thing I love about LA. Just how it, how close we are to the ocean, the mountains, forests, desert. Like it's all within like an hour or two of a drive from us. And that is what's kept me here, I, honestly. And the more that we started exploring and realizing how close everything actually is, it feels like this really cool secret that I have. I'm like, you can do a lot in LA, you just don't know about it. <laughs> so, yeah. And 
that's how I feel when I'm in the outdoors. I'm like, this is home for me because of the plants that are here, because of the animals that are here. I think that it took me so long to feel <laughs> comfortable here. If all of this were to disappear, I would feel lost in space. Here, you guys, why don't you lead the way? I'll follow. The very same stuff that makes LA great, like the large-scale urban development intertwined with nature, means we have to take a fundamentally different approach to thinking about fire in Southern California. In Southern California, all our fires are started, the severe ones uh, in the autumn, are started by people. I think one problem is that the criminal penalties in California are too low for this type of unlawful fire start or involuntary manslaughter. This is The Big Burn. I'm Jacob Margolis. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Oh, that's a uh, gooseberry. This is a gooseberry? Yeah. 100% sure? <laughs> 99% sure. Okay, pretty good odds. So should I taste it? Go ahead. Just a few miles away from where I hiked with Tiffany and Michelle, on another hill deep in the Santa Monica Mountains, I meet up with John Keeley, a research scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Wow, that gooseberry tastes exactly like a grape. Ooh, those gooseberry <laughs> seeds are very... Ooh, very tannic and very, uh, and like sour. Yeah, a lot of plants in these arid environments have a lot of tannins. That's interesting. Because um, tannins change the evaporation point uh, of the water in the leaves, so they lose less water. It's like an antifreeze. John's got white hair, a white beard, and polarized orange sunglasses, a firefighter's yellow coat, and a chainsaw and a backpack slung over his shoulder, and a serious air about him. He's not here to eat berries. He's here to gather observations. Cutting down the whole thing. He's cutting down a big berry manzanita that burned in a fire so that he can figure out how old it was when it died. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I didn't expect it to go that way. No, it's all right. I, I, it missed me. John's a big figure in the wildfire science space. For the past 49 years, he's been doing experiments like this to try and figure out how fire burns here differently in ecosystems like what we find in the mountains of Southern California than it does in other parts of the state. 
So much of what is determined we should be doing in the state is based on Northern California forest fire ecology because that's where most of the people are most concerned. I think you need to add Southern California to produce a realistic picture of what's going on in the state. The reason John and I are standing in this particular spot is because it got hit by the Woolsey fire back in 2018 which you can still see evidence of. So what are you here looking at right now? Well, what I'm interested in are these manzanitas, which uh, you see that big dead skeleton. Yeah, so they're all burnt, they're blackened. The Woolsey fire is just one example of how destructive wildfires are threatening one of the most densely populated places in the country, Southern California. Back in 2018, high up on the rim of the San Fernando Valley, home to a million plus people, sparks from a power line hit some dry brush on a windy day. The fire then tracked along the mountains along the edge of the valley, pushed by strong Santa Ana winds. Now, firefighters are worried these strong gusts could once again kick up and carry embers over to more neighborhoods and start even more fires. This fire has now spread to more than 85,000 acres, which is about the same size as Atlanta. Authorities are also Firefighters couldn't stop it, no matter what they tried. I remember breathing in smoke for what seemed like weeks, family calling to say that they needed to evacuate, and my wife Rachel and I wondering if we should pack our bags too. And in the end, after tearing through 1,600 buildings, killing three people, the fire finally stopped when it hit the biggest firebreak of them all, the Pacific Ocean. When it comes to wildfires, California can't be neatly divided into north and south. But fires do behave differently in the forests of Northern California than they do in the landscapes that we find here in this part of Southern California. So. How are wildfires here different? Well, it comes down to two things, the vegetation and how densely populated we are. First, the plants are different. The vegetation John and I are standing in the middle of isn't a green conifer forest. It's a type of landscape with lots of shrubby plants called chaparral. Chaparral burns in a fundamentally different way. You know how in earlier episodes we talked about how super destructive fires in Northern California's forests are partly a result of fuel buildup and we need to put good fire on the landscape to clear things out? Well, in Southern California's Chaparral, John says the big fires we keep seeing here aren't really driven by fuel buildup. They're often driven by really strong, dry winds. And lots of our deadliest fires happen when these Santa Ana winds blow, because they show up in the fall when everything is hot and dry. And just a single spark dropping on some crispy chaparral can take off really fast and do a lot of damage. John says prescribed burning isn't the answer in Southern California's chaparral. We already get way too much fire. And frequent fire in Southern California is actually changing the vegetation itself. We've had more fire in the last 100 years than we ever had historically. And so the, the integrity of the native shrublands is now at jeopardy because of too frequent fire. Because we're getting that too frequent fire, the native plants are having trouble recovering. And on top of that, they're facing extra stress from climate change because of heat and drought meaning the ecology of these areas, the landscapes made up of native plants that have been here forever, are being converted into landscapes dominated by non-native grasses. 
that carry fire more easily. A problematic feedback loop. Fires occur too frequently, and it means some species are going to be lost. They're going to be, go extinct. They're going to be... Uh, we don't use the term extinct because that refers to the whole species being lost, but they're extirpated, meaning they're lost from that site. So, yeah, short fire intervals uh, can extirpate species from a site. And the real concern, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned with that. We're seeing more fire here more frequently, which both threatens the ecology of this area and a lot of people. And that brings us to the second reason that Southern California is different when it comes to fire, our humongous population. Lots of people living close to these outdoor spaces means more people are in harm's way than in other places throughout the state. There are more homes to burn down. And ultimately, there are more opportunities for fires to start. While in Northern California, we can blame some of our biggest fires on lightning, we rarely see lightning-started fires here in the South. In fact, just about our whole wildfire problem here would be fixed if people never started fires in the first place. In Southern California, all our fires are started, the severe ones uh, in the autumn, are started by people. So add six billion people to the landscape and you're gonna increase the number of ignitions. I think without a doubt, the biggest concern is fire prevention. And that means preventing ignitions uh, and primarily human ignitions. And so that's probably our number one thing that we could do to uh, affect fires and fire frequency and size. Okay, so what does human ignition even mean? Well, arson does happen. Sometimes it's also something like a wheel blowing out on a car and the bare rim kicking sparks into dry brush. But then there are also the dumb accidents, like someone grilling on a hot, dry, and windy day and having some burning stuff escape. Or I personally think about the El Dorado fire, where a couple set off one of those gender reveal party smoke grenades that burn pink or blue or whatever. Well, that caught brush on fire, took off, and killed a firefighter. And truthfully, I don't know what you do about random, dumb human acts. But I think there's something to be done about the other big thing that John points at as a cause of fires, power line failures. So in the last two decades, power lines have dominated in terms of their importance. Now, why is that? Um, could be due to the last two decades, the utility companies have not been doing adequate maintenance. That's one possibility. Another possibility, though, is, is in those two decades, we've grown by six million people. And where do those people live? They live out in areas that they didn't live 20 years ago. And so when you expand the uh, development out into dangerous watersheds, uh, you increase the, the electrical grid and you increase chances. Utilities caused fires often start when equipment fails in hot, dry, and windy conditions, sometimes near very populated areas. They can be responsible for some of our scariest and most destructive fires, not just in Southern California, but across the entire state. So what do we do about them? That's after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. He made it. We peaked. <laughs> Yay. Back with Michelle and Tiffany, we finally reached the highest point of the Los Leones Trail. Gorgeous. Can you describe it for me, what we're looking at? Yeah. Um, there's a big tree, which we think is eucalyptus, but I can't tell for sure. It looks like it. And then there's like a little bench you can sit at. Um, it's very pretty. We can see the ocean. And yeah, a nice breeze and hearing some birds chirp. We look out over the ocean towards downtown. We're surrounded by that shrubby chaparral I was telling you about earlier. And I can by just looking at it know it hasn't burned for a long time because it's really thick and grown in. And we get to talking about how fire has changed these outdoor spaces. The more I, I started hiking, I just started to notice that we we get a lot of wildfires and we have a, a wildfire season, um, which I kind of started to like notice, like the little trends of usually between what, like July and September um, is when they would like kind of like start. And then I noticed between June and October. And then I noticed, oh, they're starting in March and they're just they're still burning. I just I kind of worry just about what's the state of our natural space is going to be in like 10 years time or five years even like what's it going to look like. Fire isn't necessarily bad in these systems. But what we're talking about is that we're seeing too much fire in lots of spots, so the plants aren't recovering. And that's leading to profound changes in how these places look, how we interact with them. Something Tiffany noticed, especially after one of her favorite trails, was hit by the Woolsey fire. I love that trail. It's like, you know, fairly easy. You just go to this beautiful waterfall, hike back. Um, You have some history of the land. But there was this tree. I called it the spooky tree. And every time I did that trail, I would always get so excited to see this tree. And when we recently did it, it was gone, probably because of one of the fires. I was sad that I I found, found out that it burned down. The Woolsey fire was started on a windy day by sparks from a power line owned by Southern California Edison. It's a story a lot of us Californians all over have gotten used to. It's fall, dry wind blows, some massive fire breaks out, destroys homes, people die. And a few years later, we find out it's because of some sort of power line failure. Well, according to a report from the state auditor, since 2015, power lines have caused six of the state's 20 most destructive fires. So what makes our power lines so dangerous? I posed that question to Catherine Sandoval, an attorney who was a commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission for six years. That's the agency that oversees utility companies in the state. And Catherine says one of the big issues is that most power lines in the state 
are uninsulated. Now, by uninsulated power lines, what we mean is when you look at a lot of cables and they're surrounded, I'm looking at a plug, it's surrounded by black plastic. I'm not seeing the bare wire inside. An uninsulated power line doesn't have the black plastic casing on the outside. So it's cheaper and it weighs less. And that was how Thomas Edison designed things. And that is largely how things are still laid out. The reality is that we have known for decades that if things fall on power lines, such as sadly an eagle, that what happens with an eagle is that the wingspan of an eagle, they can make contact between two different power lines and thus become energized. And sadly, fires have been caused then by eagles falling to the ground and igniting the vegetation. It actually happens more than you think, with dozens of cases of electrocuted birds causing fires across the U.S. in recent years. But truthfully, it's not really the birds we need to worry about. Usually, it's one of two things, according to the auditor's report. A power line sparks in high winds, or some sort of vegetation, like a tree, comes into contact with a line. So when you get something particularly which is dry or a big weight rubbing on an uninsulated power line, it's very easy to spark a fire either by that active line falling to the ground or sending sparks to the ground and thus igniting the vegetation below or by the line igniting the vegetation and causing a fire as appears to have been what happened with the Dixie Fire in 2021. By the way, the Dixie Fire is the second largest fire in California state history, burning nearly a million acres. There's another problem. Lots of California's energy infrastructure that runs through remote communities is old. And over time, parts wear down, so it's really important to do maintenance. And Catherine says that when they're not maintained, we get problems like what happened with the campfire. Cal Fire investigators found that during a windstorm in 2018, a hook holding up a Pacific Gas and Electric power line broke, dropping it into dry brush, starting the campfire, which killed 85 people. It was consistent with the drawing from 1912. So it appeared that the hook that broke was 100 years old and had been swinging in the wind for 100 years. The California Office of Infrastructure Safety said utilities need to move faster and be smarter if they're going to get ahead of the problem. So again, what can we do to prevent utility-sparked fires? Well, it's going to take some big infrastructure changes, which according to Michael Wurra, the director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford, includes changing out the bare, uninsulated lines. One approach is to install insulated wire on all the poles. It's super expensive, and it takes a long time because you need very skilled labor to do it. Replace the old lines with insulated ones so that when a tree or eagle lands on them, they don't go up in flames as easily. Swapping lines and also cleaning up vegetation from around power lines can work really well. PG&E, for instance, acknowledged that if they'd done pretty much those two things, they could have prevented 80% of the ignitions caused by their lines over a two-year period. But the size of the problem is huge. It's not just a few lines that need fixing. According to a state report, there are 40,000 miles of bare lines just in the areas of the state with a greater wildfire risk. 
40,000. And in 2020, so one year, all six utility companies across the state only completed about 1,500 miles of line hardening and vegetation clearing projects. In the meantime, when it's dry and windy, utility companies have taken to shutting off the power so that if something does happen with a line, it doesn't have a chance to spark and start a fire. And Michael Wurra says there's been a learning curve for the utilities with that too. When PG&E first did the big power shutoffs in 2019, they didn't know how to do it. They'd never done it before. Like turning the power off is not something that utility engineers practice, right? So when they did this, this was doing the unthinkable for them, which was good. They needed to. That was the right choice. They saved, I don't know how many lives by doing it in 2019. They're getting better at it. They're getting more surgical in how they do it. The shutoffs are something of a quick fix, but they're really disruptive. Millions of people are impacted by them. And the thing about shutting off power is that it leaves lots of people very vulnerable, especially people who can't afford energy backups. So we've talked about insulating lines, clearing vegetation, and power shutoffs. Well, there's another option. The other option is you totally switch out the infrastructure and you bury the wires in the ground. Yes, burying them underground can be quite effective. The problem is it's not possible everywhere and it's really expensive. And that is something that PG&E has proposed to do and is starting to do in places in California. The challenge there is that cost is, you know, $3 million per mile. And PG&E has 100,000 miles of overhead infrastructure, overhead wire. They're proposing to do 10,000 miles of undergrounding. That alone is $30 billion. And absorbing the impact of that in electricity rates is going to be a real challenge. Michael says we have to reckon with the fact that whatever utilities do to mitigate some of these risks, it's going to cost money. For instance, just last year, Southern California Edison raised customer rates by 12 bucks a month to fund the insulating of 4,500 miles of line. And so a balance has to be struck between how much we're willing to spend to be safer and how much that'll impact people's ability to pay their electricity bills. Electricity is an essential service and people have to pay their power bills. And that's kind of like taxing people to live in a place, right? Except we don't charge rich people more for their electricity than we charge poor people. And so it ends up being the case that electricity bills are highly regressive. And that's especially true in the parts of California where more low-income people are located, right? And so there's a distributional aspect to this. You know, electricity is an essential good. And that is the thing that's directly threatened by what's going on. Affordability is a big part of this, a big conversation we need to have. And we also need to talk about utility accountability, how these companies operate in the state. In 2020, a federal judge said that PG&E diverted funds from inspecting lines and trimming trees to pay for bonuses dividends, and political contributions. And after the campfire, PG&E pleaded guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter. They agreed to pay a $3.5 million fine. But 
You can't send a corporation to jail. Catherine Sandoval says the state isn't holding these companies sufficiently accountable. I think one problem is that the criminal penalties in California are too low for this type of unlawful fire start or involuntary manslaughter. In England, for example, after there was a terrible fire that happened here several years ago, where a high-rise apartment, what they call here an apartment block, caught on fire. And afterwards, the investigation revealed that the managers knew about a lot of problems with the apartment block and elevators not working and other things that contributed to the loss of life in the fire. And so they actually passed a law that if a corporation causes an incident that results in death, board members can go to jail. I think having a probation that is similar to federal criminal probation would be helpful. Stopping utilities from starting fires is a really complex problem. And we also need to make progress on the human ignition front, too. But fire's gonna keep coming, in part because people keep building in high-risk areas. Which brings us to the other big thing we're turning to next episode where and how we choose to build across the state, even after a fire burns everything down. I mean, I, I look around sometimes and, and I think to myself, how much more am I gonna tolerate before I start to think about where else would be better? Oy, you know, it's just, <laughs> what are you gonna do? That's next time on The Big Bird. The Big Burn is created, written, reported, and hosted by me, Jacob Margolis. Shana Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Antonia Serajido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Our producer is Mindrew Park, with additional production by Anjali Sastry Kerbacek and Monica Bushman. Bruno Lopez Vega is our intern. Natalie Chudnovsky is the senior producer. Editing by Meg Kramer. Fact checking by Caitlin Antonios. Professor Teresa Greger is our native cultural content reader. Sound design and mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Original music by Andy Clausen. Our website, alaus.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Artwork for this show by Dan Carino. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live, the Strelo family, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Big Burn is a production of LAS Studios. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. 
and six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.